It is really exciting for me to be able to preach today from this passage of Scripture. It's one that I've, I've always loved, one that means a lot to me. And it's really cool for me to be able to preach uh, the week before Christmas. It's, uh, it's really an honor. So before, before we get into the nitty-gritty of it, I'd like to start just by asking, and you don't have to answer this out loud, obviously, but how are you doing? Right, we're, we're five days away from Christmas. And it can kind of be a stressful time of year for many of us. You have presents that you possibly still have not bought, presents that you cannot afford to buy, maybe presents that you bought, or presents that you bought that you couldn't afford and are now in debt for. Um, you have friends that are giving you presents. And you didn't get them a present? <laughs> and then it makes you start to wonder, maybe they consider you a better friend than you consider them. And that's kind of awkward. And then you got to ask yourself, should I get them a present now and just bring it to them? Or would that seem too obvious? Do I just lie and say that I already got one for them? Um, and, then, and then there's some of you who are traveling. Um, I know a few people here who are going to be leaving tomorrow and heading off for the holidays. Uh, we get over scheduled. There's a lot that happens around this time of year that can make us feel a little overwhelmed. Right? And then there's some of you in here who are not overwhelmed at all. There's a couple of you in here, possibly the type of people who take notes. <laughs> Those types organize sailing towards Christmas as serenely as a tender young water lily. <laughs> I would just ask you, after the sermon, to come up and stand next to the communion table so that we can all take turns slapping you. Take the bread, dip the bread, eat the bread, slap the pool, go sit down and feel better. Um, but in all seriousness, it, it is a stressful time of year for a lot of people, and even more so than just stressful for a lot of us, for some of us. It can also be a very painful time of year. And it can be painful for a number of different reasons. See, Christmas serves to magnify our unfulfilled hopes. It's not that those hopes that we have aren't there and aren't being fulfilled the rest of the year, but specifically around Christmas, they seem to be bigger. They seem to be more present. Those things that we hope for in their absence are more greatly felt around this time. We're reminded constantly of what it is that we're missing. Every time that I get a Christmas card from a family member or a friend, it's basically the same words just jumbled around. It's, we wish you love and happiness and joy. We wish you peace, happiness, joy. We wish you joy and love and peace, and happiness, and peace again, and some more joy, and wish you all these things. And all of those things, we read that, and we go, I, you're not wishing hard enough. Because I'm not feeling all that stuff right now. We see it, we see unfulfilled hopes magnified in our children at Christmas. When they're expecting certain gifts, and you go out and you buy something for them, you buy them everything that they want. 
You buy them everything that you think they could possibly need. And then on Christmas night, you ask them, how did things go? Did you feel like you got everything that you wanted? And what did they, what did they say? Oh, kind of. Not really. Don't get mad at your kids when they do that. They're simply expressing what we may have a hard time communicating. And that's what happens when what you think is going to make you happy doesn't make you happy like you thought. <laughs> Christmas magnifies our unfulfilled hopes. And it gets more serious for some of us because this Christmas, like many before, there's going to be some empty seats around. There's going to be seats that should be filled by loved ones that we lost through tragedy. There are going to be seats in our homes this Christmas that should be filled by a spouse or parent that isn't there. They're somewhere else. They're eating in another home because sin entered in and destroyed America. There's going to be family who aren't seated with us at Christmas because we don't even know why. We just know that we don't like them. And they're not there anymore. And we sent Christmas as a part. Christmas magnifies those unfulfilled hopes, what we hoped would be, what we hoped would always be. It turns out to be an empty seat, and at Christmas, for some reason, there's just this spotlight shining on it. And that seat is so much bigger, so much more empty than it is any other time of year. Christmas doesn't magnify our unfulfilled hopes, but I'll tell you what, that's a good thing. And I'll tell you why. It's a good thing for the same reason why an MRI lighting up a spot inside of us that turns out to be cancer is a good thing. It's a good thing for the same reason why a psych evaluation helps to determine that a person suffers from a mental illness. Or a good, it's, it's like your engine light coming on before your car breaks down. It tells you. It tells you that something's wrong. The MRI can cause cancer. That psych evaluation can cause mental illness. That engine light doesn't cause your car. That, that engine light is not the cause of your car problems. Each one of those things lets us know what's wrong so that we have time to fix it, so that we have the opportunity to do something about it. And I believe that Christmas, especially around this time, it shows us that we have unfulfilled hopes, we have undesired, we have an unsatisfied and desperate state. And then Christmas points us towards the very thing that will serve to meet that need. The very thing that will ultimately fulfill us. So I want to read from Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. 
Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So we have Jesus arriving in the temple. He is about 40 days old at this point, just a baby. He's being brought there so that his parents might offer sacrifices for purification. And as he's there, now this is something they did for every, every firstborn male. Now they're there and there's this man and his name is Simeon. And the Bible doesn't tell us much about Simeon. It tells us that he was righteous and that he was devout. He was a good man. He knew the Lord, he loved the Lord, he knew God's word, and he was waiting for what the Bible refers to as the consolation of Israel. It could also be referred to as the comforting of Israel. He's waiting for God to come and redeem his people. He's waiting day in and day out for God to come and save his people. And as far as we know, reading in scripture, there were only two people who were in the temple that day besides Mary and Joseph who had any inkling of who it was that Mary was holding in her arms. Simeon and a woman named Anna, who you can read about later on in the chapter. When Simeon sees Jesus, you look at verse 29 especially, the most striking thing to me, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. You're letting your servant depart in peace. The Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ, before he had seen the promised one, seen the Messiah, seen the consolation of Israel. In that morning when Mary, when a teenager, walked in holding a baby that nobody else thought was much of anything, he saw the salvation of God to the point that his hope was ultimately fulfilled. His hope was ultimately fulfilled. He was able to lift his arms in the air holding that baby and say, Lord, I can go now. My life is complete. There's nothing else that I exist for. I have seen, I have seen your salvation. We all have things that we think are going to make us ultimately happy. We all have things, we all have hopes that we feel like if they were just to be fulfilled, we would be truly satisfied, right? That's the way I felt when I first met my wife. When I first saw Trish, she was holding hands with another guy. That guy may or may not have been a friend. He was. He's not anymore. 
But I saw him holding her hand, and I thought, that looks like fun. I think I'd like to try that. So I flirted with her, hardcore. And a week later, she pulled up. And I'll just tell you, I was not that kind of guy. I was not that kind of guy. I wasn't like, hey, babes, or whatever guys said. I wasn't that guy. I just really, really liked her. And a week later, she came driving into uh, the place where I worked, a hotel that I worked at in, in Casa Grande. And she said that she had broken up with this guy. And she wanted to hang out. So we hung out. We started holding hands. It was nice. I liked it. I still like it. <laughs> but at no point did I lift up my hands and say, Lord, now you may let your servant depart in peace. I wasn't like, take me now, Jesus. I've, I've experienced it all. No, it was this thing that I wanted that, that I thought would bring me ultimate fulfillment. I mean, I think any of us in here who have been involved in a relationship, especially in the early stages, that's how you feel about somebody. As soon as we started dating, I felt like I wanted to get married. So a year later, we got married. Pretty quick. After we got married, we wanted kids. Now we have kids, they're great. Now I'm waiting for the day when they move out of my freaking house. <laughs> so I can have my wife back. <laughs> but we all have those things, we all have things in our life that we consider ultimate things, things that are gonna bring us happiness, things that are gonna bring us joy, things that we lay awake in bed at night fighting with our pillow, fighting with the blanket, fighting against sleep, saying if I just have this one thing, I will be Please, I will be satisfied. And then we get it. We get the home that we always wanted. We get the car that we always wanted to drive. We get the girl. We get the degree, we get the skill set. We get the job. And as soon as we get those things, they don't satisfy us. Maybe it lasts a moment, maybe it lasts a week, maybe it lasts a month, but ultimately those things are going to leave us feeling pretty empty. And then even more so than that, sometimes the things that we hope for never happen. And we find ourselves feeling dejected. We find ourselves feeling bitter. And I want you to take that and I want you to compare it to Simeon this morning, because where else do we see this? Here is a man whose life is completely satisfied because of what he saw in Mary's arms that morning. I have three sons. And as many of you know, one is named Simeon. We named him Simeon because of this story. Because it's always been my hope and prayer not just for him, but for all of my children, that they would grow up and like Simeon, they would see Jesus for who he was, that they would see him as all satisfying, all fulfilling, that they would receive him appropriately, that they would know how much they are loved by him. I have prayed that prayer over my kids every night since they were born. Lord, let them know how much Jesus loves them. 
What did Simeon see in Jesus that day that others weren't seeing? I think there's three things specifically that he saw. The first is he saw God keeping his promises. He saw God keeping his promises. The Bible tells us that he was a righteous man, a devout man. He undoubtedly knew his Bible. He knew the scripture up to that point. He knew exactly what God had promised. And when everybody else who was in the temple that day was waiting for some grand military leader to step in and to save them from the oppression that they were under, when they were waiting for some political figure who would fulfill all of their national needs, Simeon was looking for someone that Isaiah described as having nothing in him No form or majesty that we would look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He's looking for somebody who didn't come from money, who didn't come from power. He sees a most likely ugly baby in a teenager's arms. And look, I'm just saying, he might have been an ugly, and there are ugly babies. Some of you have ugly babies. I've had two ugly babies. One of them was cute. He's looking for something that you would not expect to find hope and, and joy and salvation and peace and, and fulfillment in. And he, and he sees it, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He knew what God had said. And when he saw him, the Holy Spirit said, there he is. He knew what God had promised. And I want to submit something to you today. I think the reason why so many of us end up feeling this lack in our lives, feeling like God has somehow gypped us is we don't know his promises. We assume his promises. Let me tell you some things that we may assume God has promised that he did not promise. He did not promise you the American dream. He did not promise you the two-story house with the two-car garage, the wonderful spouse, the children who turn out better than you, he didn't promise you that. He didn't promise you that when you were nice to others, that they would be nice to you. He didn't promise you that if you always thought of others before yourself, that everything in your life was just gonna work out and somebody was gonna give you an attaboy. He didn't promise you that. He didn't promise me that. And again, that can make us feel bitter. That can make us feel disappointed. But I want to tell you, the promises that he did make to us, the promises that he's kept, are so much better. They are so much better. In the very beginning, in the garden, when the original sinners, Adam and Eve, when they disobey God, when they turn against him and what it is he had intended for them, in that moment, God looks at the serpent who was Satan who had deceived them, and he says, her offspring, someday, he's gonna crush you. He took a man named Abraham, who was old, 
whose wife was old. They were too old to have children. And he said, I'm going to make a great nation from you, from your family, a nation through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. Through your offspring, a son will be born that's going to bless the world. He promised in the book of Isaiah when he talked about this servant who would come, who would cause many of us to be counted as righteous, though we are not. When Simeon saw Jesus walk into the temple this morning, he saw every one of those promises and countless others in Jesus completely fulfilled. He says in verse 29, you're going to let me depart in peace, right? According to your word, he saw Jesus and he knew that God kept his word. He knew that God kept his promises. And then he says, for I have seen your salvation. When Simeon looked at Jesus, the second thing I think he saw, he saw God defeating sin. That's not what we normally get when we look at a baby, right? We don't think of some grandiose thing that they'll accomplish in their lifetime. But when he looked at Jesus, he saw the end of sin. And Simeon, I think, had a very good understanding of sin. Because the Bible tells us he was a righteous, he was a devout man. And the more righteous you are, the more you are in tune with what God is saying, what God is doing, the more you begin to see not only sin outside yourself, but sin inside yourself. He knew the destructive power of sin. It's likely that he saw it in the religious leaders of his day who would take God's word and manipulate it for political purposes. He saw it in himself. And like many of us today, he sees it in war and in famine, in death, in brokenness. Simeon understood the destructive power of sin. And when he saw Jesus, he knew God's power to save. He sat in that temple. God only knows how many days. And he would see people bringing in sacrifices, animal sacrifices, blood for blood, killing animals so that their sin could be atoned for. And undoubtedly, he would see the same people coming in week after week, month after month, maybe year after year, the same people because as soon as they had sacrificed an animal, as soon as its blood had been spilt in their place, they had more sin that needed to be covered. And when he saw Jesus... He saw God's definitive blow to sin. One sacrifice for all time and for all people. When we begin to understand that sin is the problem, then when we look at Jesus, we realize how desperately we need that kind of redemption. We realize how desperately we need that kind of salvation. He becomes infinitely more glorious. Amen. 
let's, let's read this last portion of scripture here. Beginning in verse 33, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I think the third thing that Simeon saw that morning was a hope that prevails in spite of circumstances. I'm comforted that when Simeon, I called him Simeon because that's my son's name. Can you believe that? I'll just call him Simeon for the rest of the sermon if that's okay. When Simeon sees this, when Simeon, when Simeon saw Jesus, he didn't see this perfect picture of what was going to happen. He didn't see the plot line of a, of a Disney cartoon. He saw Emmanuel. He saw God with us. And he knew, he knew that there would be opposition to God in this world. He knew the darkness that was here. He could see that Jesus would be a sign that was opposed. When he looked at Jesus, he could see families torn in two. Some of you have experienced that yourself. If you became a Christian and you come from a family that's not Christian, you feel this sense of separation. I've known people for whom it has literally caused them to stay divided, to not speak to one another, that there is this tension that exists that has not been removed. Some of you, it's just uncomfortable. It's just this thing that's constantly in the back of your head, even dividing you just because you see the people that you know and you love and you're so concerned for them. You want them to know the joy that you've received in Jesus. Simeon saw that. He saw families divided. He saw a nation divided. He saw hope. But it was shrouded in darkness. And yet he rejoiced. He rejoiced because he knew God's ability to fulfill his promises, to conquer sin, and to prevail in spite of adversity, in spite of the circumstances that surrounded that great hope. Some of you, that's not the, that's not the hope you're looking for. The hope that Jesus offers is not the kind of hope that you're looking for. Because it's not a pretty hope. It starts out wrapped in swaddling cloths. It spends its life clothed in controversy. It finds its ending nailed to a Roman cross. This hope bleeds. This hope breaks. But this hope prevails. This hope prevails. 
when our hope is rightly placed in Jesus, it is going to be fulfilled. And we see that now. We know, we know what Jesus did. We know the sacrifice that he made on the cross. We're, we're this side of the story looking back. We know how the story ends. We know that he raises from the dead. We know how things are going to happen, and yet we still feel the sense of darkness and adversity and all the same problems that Simeon saw that were to happen in Jesus' lifetime. Now it's not Jesus, it's us as his followers. We're, we're experiencing the darkness that's in the world. But even in the midst of this, we see that hope prevailing in some amazing ways. I see it in my own home every Thursday when my home is filled with people that I would never, I would most likely never have known. They would not consider me a friend and I would not consider them a friend. But we come together every Thursday because of this common hope that we share. Those empty seats in my house are filled. That's God's hope prevailing in the midst of circumstances, in the midst of adversity. Those seats are now, those seats are now filled by people that I love and I know love me. Even when I don't feel like God is actively doing something incredible in my life at that moment, I can look at one of their lives and I can see the work that he's doing. Even when the person that I've been praying for in my family remains untouched, who seems hard-hearted towards the gospel and the good news of Jesus, I get to see that hope moving in their lives as they talk about, as they talk about the people that they've been praying for coming to that realization. God's hope prevails. That hope fulfills, and it changes things. That kind of hope, that kind of hope takes a little church in Tucson, in the heart of downtown, meeting in a school, it makes it look like a majestic kingdom that you would want to be a part of because of the hope that fills that place. That hope prevails. That hope prevails. And here's the best part. It's free. Everything else that we put our, our hope in, in this life we work towards, we strive for, We'll do anything to receive, and then it doesn't satisfy. The gift which is most satisfying costs nothing on our part. And I want, you, I want to remind you of that this week, especially as we come towards Christmas and you see your kids opening presents, you receive some yourself, whatever. As you're thinking about that gift, think about this gift, the gift that is God's hope that he's given you so that you might be completely satisfied, so that you might feel what it is means to be loved, what it means to be known, what it means to be treasured. That's God's gift to us. That's a good gift. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, we thank you for so freely offering up your son for us. We thank you, Lord, that there has been grace extended towards us to cover 
our lack of trust in Jesus, our lack of love for Jesus, our lack of understanding of your promises. The most beautiful thing about your promises, Father, is that you, you give them to us in spite of who we are, in spite of the circumstances in which they arrive. We can walk out of here today knowing, knowing that there's nothing that's gonna snatch us out of your hand, knowing that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us, knowing that you are working all things out for our good, ultimately. We thank you for that. We thank you for the hope that you've given to us as Christians, as you've given to us today. And I pray, Lord, for anybody today who has not yet been able to see that hope, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just open their eyes, give them sight, help them to know how much they are loved, help them to know how much they are cared for and treasured. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.